The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Middle-income families need help. Uh, we're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spin-off from that. There's spin-offs in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. But I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts. Share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. We've seen one of the most important geopolitical stories of this century so far evolve at incredible speed today. Following a weekend that saw Kabul fall to the Taliban, the Afghan president flee his own country, American diplomats burning documents at the now former U.S. Embassy. And an American president returning to the White House from Camp David days before scheduled to address the American people on an historic day. Coming up on Sound On, we'll bring you to the White House to speak with Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern, who's standing by right now. And we'll be joined by former White House communications official and political optics expert Adam Belmar about the response inside the administration. President Biden was not supposed to return to the White House, as we've told you, until the middle of this week. But as you heard live Last hour on Bloomberg Radio, he returned from Camp David to speak to the American people from the East Room. I stand squarely behind my decision. Over the coming days, we intend to transport out thousands of American citizens who have been living and working in Afghanistan. We'll also continue to support the safe departure of civilian personnel, the civilian personnel of our allies who are still serving in Afghanistan. And we go to the White House now where Bloomberg's Anne-Marie Hordern has been since the president returned. Anne-Marie, the president walked through the history of this conflict and said he will not repeat the mistake of fighting indefinitely. Then it turns out he got back in the motorcade. He's headed back to Camp David. Yeah, I think the optics for the president is going to be tricky with many saying uh, there's still a situation unfolding in Kabul, especially at the airport where, Joe, you and I both, uh, we're on together when we heard that the Pentagon was even adding another thousand troops. So more troops than we even had there, we were trying to draw them down, has now been doubled. So 7,000 to make sure that U.S. personnel is evacuated. And and the speech, he, he went through all the reasons why, which we all know. This was, he said, again, this is a deal struck under the former administration that he inherited. Mm-hmm. But also he talked about the, the will of the Afghan army that just wasn't there, but you have to ask yourself, Joe, what kind of will can the Afghan army have when also the U.S. government is publicly negotiating with the Taliban? Yeah, well, For many of them, it just felt like this was a done deal years ago. That's an important part of the story, Anne-Marie. I know you're in a busy atmosphere with the president coming and going, but but just tell us quickly about the way this went down. It was pooled coverage, right? We did not have a room full of reporters, and the, que- the president took no questions. Exactly. 
pooled coverage. I signed up to go in and I was denied. A part of this is because they are trying to keep numbers small since COVID, mm-hmm. but many are starting to think potentially this was just because it was something he was only going to give a speech, no questions at all. And then he got back on Marine One. I'm still at the White House. The president has left him actually outside, Joe, where there's a group of protesters protesting what is going on. Can hear the one thing the president did not, did not address, which is the elephant in the room, is the question of why. Why was the withdrawal handled in this way? Carissa Ward from CNN, who's been in Kabul, said many Afghanis on the street say to her, we can understand why the U.S. has to get out at this point, but why does it have to be this way? And the president did not answer that question that everyone has been talking about since Friday evening. Sounds like a challenged cell signal from the White House lawn, Anne-Marie. We thank you and we'll let you get in position uh, for your next uh, bit of duty here on Bloomberg TV. Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Hordern holding down at the White House. And we want to bring in Adam Belmar for his special view on this. You heard Adam on Friday here on Sound On. He's principal at the Advocacy Content Kitchen, former ABC News Washington senior producer, former deputy assistant to the president and Deputy Director of White House Communications in the W. Bush administration. Adam, welcome back. The optics surrounding our departure in Afghanistan have been challenged, I think it's safe to say, not only from the images in Kabul, but from Camp David, where we've talked a lot about the president sitting alone in that conference room, staring at the screen with empty chairs. Was it the right thing to come back to the White House today? Oh, in my mind, there was no doubt that the president made the right call to come back to the White House and deliver this address from the East Room, his back to the South Wall of the East Room with those gold curtains pulled shut and those American flags behind him. He entered that room swiftly. He was focused, Joe. He was powerful, resolute. He looked healthy. And I think that speech was delivered well. And most importantly, it was intended for a domestic American audience. Mm -hmm. I thought the president's optics around the speech today were quite strong. And they stood in contrast to the sitting alone in a cavernous room at Camp David as things so obviously were spinning out of control over the weekend. Apparently already on his way back to Camp David, Adam, you and I talked a lot about Camp David on Friday and the many resources he has there. Uh, And before we dig into that a bit more, why this afternoon? Why the East Room? Your job at the White House was to make decisions like that based on the needs and the urgency of the moment. Doesn't the end of America's longest war justify a national primetime address from behind the desk in the Oval Office? Well, the president had already addressed the nation on the decision to leave. This is obviously a much more dynamic, uh, uncertain, and emergent set of circumstances as we actually leave. I think it was this afternoon for another reason. Kabul is nine and a half hours ahead of Washington, D.C., and we saw the chaos at the airport today, the horrible scene of Afghanis grabbing onto American aircraft, some plummeting to their depth after leftoff. But the president was speaking at a time when it was pitch black in Kabul. It's the middle of the night. Um, There was no juxtaposed current chaos going on with the full screen images of the president. He also made that address, Joe Matthew, right after the markets closed here on the east coast of the United States. I think it was well-timed and quite honestly, had the president chosen to do this address from another venue, say the Oval Office, during Mm -hmm. a prime time he would have probably elevated this to an awareness and a level even higher than he needed or wanted it to be, especially considering the knives are out for the president's mishandling here. Although I would say again, 
I think he presented himself and his speech incredibly well this afternoon. He was obviously prepped uh, quite a bit for this moment and chose not to take questions. As we were talking with Anne-Marie from the White House uh, just a few moments ago, Adam, uh, pool coverage only. The idea here was to limit the amount of interaction, I, I presume, with the media. What did you make of that? I thought it was the right play, and that is not uh, atypical for a president who's going to make an address like this of any kind. That room is almost empty. I've stood in it. You can hear a pin drop. The president did a great job of looking directly into the eyes of the American people. He was able to do that because the script was loaded into an over-the-lens teleprompter. There was nothing else to pull his attention away from. There were no sound of cameras snapping pictures. This was 100 percent. Uh, set up for the president to make his best case, to connect directly with the American people. And I think he did that. And it stood in stark contrast to some of the messaging that was coming to the American people on the airwaves this morning when Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, seemed to be advising all of us on a set of facts that didn't comport themselves with what we were seeing. The president, while there'll be some question about some of the taking credit or not taking credit for some of the elements of this withdrawal and what some are calling a debacle was certainly not stumbling. He was resolute and looked very firm, if not incredibly focused, I would say, for this president today. Well, how about the job the communications shop has done? I know this hits a little close to home for you, but that's the point, Adam. You just mentioned the Jake Sullivan uh, interview this morning that a lot of people were talking about a little while ago. Uh, How is this uh, portion of the executive, that which presents the the policies and uh, the direction to the American people conducting itself here. I'm, I'm assuming not real well, but you can tell me. Well, I think the communicators have had a remarkably difficult challenge, and they stand separate and apart from the national security apparatus, the military, mm-hmm. and the National Security Council folks who are actually handling this crisis. Now, how it's perceived both here in Washington, around the country, by Americans and around the world – That's the province of communicators. These are the same folks who decided to release that photograph from Camp David in the conference room. I think they're off their game. They've miscalculated and they haven't put the president in the best light. So some of this team is having a very hard time and some of it, well, we're going to have to keep our powder dry to better understand the details of how all of this has transpired. What happened over the last 24 hours, 48 hours can be perceived slightly differently in the days to come. That's not to say that it'll age well, but it might. But the communicators, they need to uh, put their chin straps on and get back in the game. Well, it's back to Camp David. Uh, What message does that send? And what's the real reason he's going there? Does he have more ability to be briefed in private? Does it keep him away from reporters? Is he going to be meeting with someone there in person? Or don't we know? Well, it certainly uh, confounds the press that they're not sitting there watching all of the comings and going in the West Wing, and the president has a modicum of privacy. I would posit that the president and his team are very much like a Bloomberg team today. They are playing on a timeline that is nine and a half hours ahead of the East Coast. They are literally working daylight hours in Kabul and trying to keep the commander-in-chief in the loop at a time when we are not following the open and close of the New York Stock Exchange. There's no ticker tape for this. They are 100% focused on it, and they have a flexibility uh, with supporting the president at Camp David that they don't, frankly, enjoy at the White House. It's a short hop. They prove that. He's here. He's there. He's back. This wasn't like going to Mar-a-Lago. He didn't put anybody out, but uh, he was right to come back, Joe. 
He was right to come back, but odd that he would leave as soon as the speech is done. No, what can he do there that he cannot do here, Adam? Well, I do expect that there are things attendant to this that we just don't know about, and I can't account for all of them. I'd like to say that there's nothing he can't do there that he can't do at the White House. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are a lot of folks who are downrange, as they say, who are reporting in. You saw that picture from the conference room where CIA folks in Doha who are sitting on the, round, on the ground there negotiating with Taliban members. There is a worldwide effort underway, and I think it's negligible. So there may be some other things that we're not accounting for and just don't have vision on. Yeah. I don't see it being fundamentally flawed for the president to go back to Camp David, but this shuttle back and forth when there's something to say will get trying, and he will be jabbed for it come Sunday morning, no doubt. He's been there. That's why we call him on days like this. Adam Belmar, longtime ABC News Washington producer, former deputy assistant to President George W. Bush from the communications shop. We thank you, Adam. Sound on with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Back early from Camp David to address the nation, President Biden says he stands squarely behind his decision to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan, addressing the nation from the East Room a short time ago. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. And we bring in Norman Rule, former CIA official, visiting fellow at the National Security Institute for his read on this. Norm, welcome. I'm curious to hear your reaction to the president's address today. Things felt very chaotic before he spoke from the East Room. Did it help? I'm not sure. I think the president accomplished three things in his speech. I think he demonstrated resolve as to his decision and that he is committed to not passing this problem on to another uh, uh, president. I think he also stated clearly that uh, this was not a war that we could expect to uh, win, uh, although we had achieved our initial goals of destroying al-Qaeda and destroying capturing bin Laden. I think he also conveyed a sense that the United States will continue to push for its values, but where I think he was a little thin was on exactly how we're going to do that beyond firm statements. Well, that's right. Uh, he he did, you know, do the buck stops with me. He seemed to want to strike an honest tone, Norm. But how come just weeks ago he didn't seem to be aware of how quickly this would go? That's what so many Americans are asking. So in fairness, predicting crowd intent, predicting resolve is something that's very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And I think in a real world, I would say the number of people who predicted that, for example, Hillary Clinton would win the election or that an Arab Spring would begin throughout the Middle East after a single uh, uh, vegetable cells and sets itself aflame. Those are impossible to predict in terms of timing. But the intelligence community did predict, and this is public information, that Afghanistan, the Afghan army was eroding in its capability. Uh, however, there are many who believe that our decision to uh, withdraw, in essence, undermined a, uh, the entire structure, which inevitably fell at the first pressure. As a former CIA official, give us a sense of what might be going on the ground now. We know that there are six or 7,000 American troops due at or already arriving at the airport there. Certainly our intelligence community is on the ground as well. How important are the next 24 hours for American foreign policy? Well, first, your listeners should know that there's an incredible amount of heroic activity taking place in Afghanistan from our military and other agencies and personnel are present. These are untold stories by volunteers who are risking their lives at a critical moment, and we should honor them. 
In the next few days, I think you're going to see a more crisper operation as the uh, U.S. government, in, in essence, gets its act together as it, it re- responding to existing events. And I think also there's going to be a firmer statement to the Taliban that they need to ensure they stay away while we conduct this withdrawal. And the president made that comment today. I think the wild card here is what happens if the Taliban aren't willing to uh, um, uh, undertake that uh, uh, promise? I think they will because I believe uh, they want to see us gone, and the pictures alone from the airport are giving us the strategic embarrassment that they see. How about that? And then once we're gone, it's back to the old Taliban? Pretty much so, although I think they've seen the benefits of diplomacy and their engagement with Russia and China, I think is going to be important. China is going to look to protect everything from um, its own Uyghur population, from the contagion of Taliban. Russia is going to work with to improve its uh, influence in Central Asia at the expense of the United States, uh, because Central Asian states are worried about terrorist groups that are based in Afghanistan. I think you're going to watch Iran also work to bring in some of the Afghan brigades from Syria that it's run to increase its Uh, influence in the region. All of these countries will be dealing with a problem. But above all, I think we need to recognize that this is a moment when al-Qaeda could reconstitute itself. Uh, The al-Qaeda operatives in in Iran, which included second-in-command, are likely waiting to return to um, uh, Afghanistan. And we've got to do everything we can to um, obviously prevent that from happening. So the job for U.S. counterterrorism experts has just become much, much harder. Well, tell me more about that. Obviously, it was al-Qaeda that attacked us on 9-11 and began all of this. Will they find harbor in Afghanistan once again, or do you think it is more likely Iran or some other country? Well, first, within Afghanistan right now, you already have al-Qaeda operatives on the ground, as well as operatives from ISIS. You have, however, uh, Iran holding the al-Qaeda leadership uh, in loose um, uh, detention. And remember, Abu Muhammad al-Masri and his daughter were killed by someone uh, last year uh, because they were likely undertaking terrorist activity that needed to be stopped. I think they're going to seek to come back into country However, al-Qaeda is not the same organization it used to be. And I think you've, you've got this new mix of terrorists, and we, it will take them a while to reconstitute themselves. There are probably about 20 different terrorist groups operating in the region, and there's going to be a scrum for influence and power. Here's your, your most uh, interesting or dangerous point. The Taliban have emptied Afghanistan's prisons, which contains some of the most hardened, seasoned al-Qaeda and militant operatives that we were able to, uh, to, to detain. They're now loose, and they're going to be looking for leadership, and they're going to be looking for, um, uh, uh, for opportunities to strike the United States. Norm Rule, former CIA official, visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. We thank you so much for the time, and remember what Norm said. There are heroes on the ground operating right now in Kabul, saving lives. As many people ask, what will happen to the interpreters and our other friends over the last 20 years they will be the ones deciding their fate the countdown has begun from may 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the carter economic forum powered by bloomberg join heads of state influential ministers and leading ceos to make new connections gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
What a day we've had. If you've spent some time with us on Bloomberg television and radio, you've seen it all happen since the president came back to the nation's capital, spoke to the American people, then went back to Camp David where his day began. And that is where he will stay for at least another 24 hours here as the president interprets all of the information that we have been talking about. Of course, straight from his intelligence community, there are many things we don't know right now. And that's why we want to talk with Roger Baker, Strat4, Vice President of Strategic Analysis, a risk intelligence expert who's been monitoring Afghanistan for decades. He leads Strat4's strategic thinking on global issues, future trends. And Roger, welcome. You've got quite a bit to think about. I wonder what your thoughts are. Going back to the weekend, before we heard from the president today and the comparisons to the evacuation of Saigon, we've heard a lot of explaining about what took part there, what happened there, and and the administration is trying to show a posture of confidence that we are in control of the airport, for instance, but did you ever think you'd see that image of diplomats burning documents on the roof of the now former U.S. Embassy? Unfortunately, in some ways, yes. Um, the, The question for probably a decade almost on Afghanistan is, uh, how is the U.S. going to get out? And is there any um, uh, decent interval for the United States to be able to uh, make its way out of Afghanistan without looking like a complete collapse? And it's been very difficult to see any any way that the U.S. could get out in a in a less um, uh, unfortunate set of circumstances. Do you believe that officials at the White House had no idea how quickly this might happen? And if, if they did, why did the president try to suggest otherwise? I think that there was a a belief that there were probably a few more weeks before the fall of Kabul, that it wasn't going to happen quite as rapidly as it did. The, the collapse of many of the Afghan security forces, the speed with which they uh, left their posts or Afghan police, I think, was uh, unexpected particularly in this in this last phase, there was some anticipation that there would be a concentration of forces in and around Kabul to try to protect the city. Um, when the president fled, when the forces started to collapse, um, clearly things moved much faster than people anticipated. What happens from here? I'm sure that we have members of the intelligence community on the ground there. Are these real-time game day calls or do we have an intelligence community and an administration rolling out plans that have been long thought about? I think that, well, well, there is some sense of, of long strategic planning or thought. Obviously, as things unfold in a very rapid manner, uh, one has to um, simply adapt and adjust as things are happening. And that's, that's just a baseline reality, right? Mm-hmm. So the U.S. could have anticipated it had X number of weeks to draw down staff and, and slowly arrange for um, uh, Afghan interpreters and such yeah. to be able to be moved out of the country. But clearly that path has had to be accelerated and people are having to make decisions on the fly. We're talking with Roger Baker from Strat4. Talk to us about the vacuum that is being left here, Roger. Obviously the Taliban is there to fill it, but how about China? How about Russia, who are not going to wait around? 
Well, I think that China and Russia are actually taking an extremely cautious approach to Afghanistan. Neither country wants to be drawn in militarily into Afghanistan. Both countries would like to see some sense of relative stability in Afghanistan because it threatens their interest in the region. And so we've seen both Moscow and Beijing engage with the Taliban. Both have also issued a a caution to the Taliban. They said, we're willing to uh, interact with a Taliban leadership, but we're going to withhold uh, formal diplomatic recognition until we see if the Taliban is capable of basically stopping the use of Afghanistan as a base of operations for attacks against Chinese or Russian interests in Central Asia or South Asia or in China itself. Roger, I started this conversation uh, with a reference to Saigon. There's been a lot of concern about evacuating our allies there, the actual allies, the Afghan allies who helped us in the war zone by acting as interpreters, drivers, contractors, and so forth. How important will it be to rescue them to safety? And and how much of a black eye could that be for the U.S. if those are left behind? I mean, certainly from a from a what is what is right um, from a humanitarian perspective and from a uh, trust perspective, particularly from the point of view of our armed forces that have served in Afghanistan for the past 20 years, there's a clear necessity to take responsibility for these individuals and help them to get out of the country. As for the the long term question of a, a black eye. I think that the United States, there is a recognition internationally uh, Mm -hmm. that the United States does shift and adjust uh, its attention and its focus, that at times it will end up uh, leaving unfortunate situations, but that overall uh, one shouldn't entirely underestimate the United States when its attention is actually drawn uh, and focused on a particular threat or a particular challenge. So certainly there is some political uh, uh, loss here for the United States, some perception mm-hmm. of failure by the United States. But at the same time, as countries around the world are looking at uh, what comes next in other regions and other dynamics, they have to look and say, is, is the United States a, a, a strong entity still or is it completely weak? Do we have to accede to the Chinese? Do we accede to the Russians? Are the Europeans capable of filling this gap? Roger Baker at Stratfor. We appreciate the insights. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On as we keep an eye on history. Good evening. A quarter century of American involvement in South Vietnam is over. This is manifestly not Saigon. The fact of the matter is this. We went to Afghanistan 20 years ago uh, with one mission in mind, and that was to deal with the people who attacked us on 9-11. And that mission has been successful. At mid-afternoon, Saigon time, an armada of 81 U.S. Marine helicopters descended on the South Vietnamese capital. I stand squarely behind my decision. Over the coming days, we intend to transport out thousands of American citizens. More than 6,000 persons, as many as 900 of them Americans, the rest Vietnamese and third country nationals, were evacuated. Plucked from the U.S. Embassy grounds, from rooftops throughout the city, and from the nearby Tontanut Airport. Fast forward to today. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden speaks 
saying he stands squarely behind his decision to pull troops from Afghanistan, came back into the nation's capital for a very brief visit today from Camp David and then went back. And that is where the president will stay for the next day or two as he meets virtually and in person with his intelligence and military advisors. Having seen all hell break loose over the weekend, the president today says the U.S. will continue to fight terrorism in Afghanistan even after the pullback. And based on what we are seeing there, that could take on a few different forms with thousands of troops, U.S. troops now at the airport in Kabul, the U.S. embassy no longer. And many members of our intelligence community on the ground in Afghanistan trying to get Americans and its allies out of the country. We're joined now in our remaining moments in this hour of Sound On by Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, former Biden campaign surrogate, and Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. Kevin and Bill, welcome. We're glad you're here, and I'm sure that you're not going to agree on everything here with regard to the way the Biden administration is handling this, but I do know that you both want what's best for this country. And Kevin, I'll start with you after what you heard from Joe Biden today and and some of the backpedaling that we have heard from his advisors following a spiraling weekend in Afghanistan. Are they beginning to catch up with what's happening on the ground? Joe, it's good to be with you. It certainly seems that way, obviously, with the president uh, heading back from Camp David for this speech. Uh, reality is setting in uh, among uh, himself and his advisors. And, and you kind of saw a president uh, admit to the extent that he could that they were wrong in terms of the time, timeline that they thought uh, would be possible in terms of the Taliban, uh, not just taking uh, provincial capitals, but then obviously taking the capital in Kabul. Uh, so uh, it, it was some sort of mea culpa. Obviously, he has to build on that uh, in the coming hours, days, and weeks to make sure uh, that as we surge some troops to uh, the Karzai International Airport, some mm-hmm. six to 7,000 troops, that they can uh, work effectively not just to secure the airport, but to get as many Afghan civilians, international folks back as possible. Bill, there are plenty of bad things to talk about here, optically uh, and politically speaking. But people also like a president who's honest. We know this was not a popular effort over the past many years. And for the president to say that I am the president, the buck stops with me, was that moving in the right direction in terms of communications? Look, I think that the president tried to make the best speech possible with uh, some really chaotic and unstable uh, conditions on the ground in Kabul and across Afghanistan. I think it's worth noting that immediately after the president's speech, the State Department spokesman uh, took to the lectern uh, and basically said that the military is working to restore security at at the airport, which means the images that we're seeing right now will probably continue on uh, for hours, if not days, but that also U.S. citizens who are not physically located at the airport um, should continue to shelter in place until they can figure out a plan to get them out. I think what this means is that both operationally and politically, uh, in terms of domestic U.S. politics, uh, this is something that's going to continue to play out over the next couple of days. Um, I think that the president uh, obviously took uh, responsibility uh, for his decision to continue on with the plan to withdraw from Afghanistan. But I think that in, in, in those terms, the president uh, his speech kind of missed the mark on what's on the mind of Americans. And I think, you know, Democrats, Republicans and independents are so focused right now 
is making sure that American service members, uh, civilian personnel, uh, and contractors, and uh, our allies who assisted us over 20 years are able to safely evacuate uh, from, from Afghanistan. But that really wasn't the focus of the president's speech. The, the speech was about whether to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And I think that what the American public was looking for was a better explanation and a demonstration that the president's in control of the situation, uh, they're on top of it, um, and why this had gone so wrong and what the steps are to correct the situation. Kevin, the president also suggested that the U.S. would continue to respond to any threats against the homeland. There are worries, of course, the Taliban and al-Qaeda could potentially use Afghanistan once again as a base to launch attacks. How important will it be to follow through on that? And and what does he mean by it if we're not going to be in Afghanistan? Yeah, it's a good question, Joe. And, and in fact, you know, Bill and I are in agreement uh, with a, a lot of what he said. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's nightfall now, obviously, in Afghanistan. It will be critically important uh, to reopen uh, the airport uh, tomorrow uh, for both civilian and military uh, aircraft. But you also have other uh, leading intelligence officials on my side, former uh, CIA Director John Brennan, for example, that says that al-Qaeda to some degree will be emboldened by this. They have uh, some uh, relationships uh, with the more hardliners uh, within the Taliban, uh, obviously specifically around the Afghan-Pakistan uh, border, uh, and that we need to obviously step up our abilities to surveil that. Now, we won't have the presence on the ground like we have over the last 20 years, but that will certainly be a key focus, I think, for obviously the CIA, all of our defense intelligence agencies going forward as we transition from an on-the-ground presence to some presence where we can monitor any of these developments, because that will be a critical issue. If al-Qaeda comes back uh, with some level of strength, there's going to be a lot of second-guessing, as there is going on right now with the evacuation of Afghanistan, uh, in the near uh, t- to late future, I think, uh, if that, that takes place. Bill, the president has uh, not pulled back his words in blaming the Afghan military for, for simply giving up, for not using the money, the tools, the training that the U.S. gave them. Is that fair? Knowing that the U.S. was withdrawing and that the Taliban was, was arming up, should we have expected anything else? I think that's the right question. And every military expert that I've talked to or listened to um, has talked in terms of that it should not have been surprising after the announce of the withdrawal that the Afghan military and its civilian leadership uh, would not have the will uh, or the, the, the wherewithal to stand up to, to the Taliban. I don't think, you know, there's a lot of questions surrounding how we got here uh, in the last six days with the rapid uh, collapse of the Afghan government and the the full surrender of the Afghan military. And I think, you know, it's too early uh, to fully understand exactly how this happened, whether the uh, intelligence didn't get it right. Um, Although there's a lot of reports saying that both uh, the intelligence community and the military leadership um, had warned that the collapse could be pretty quick. Um, Mm. I I think we're going to need some passage of time before we're able to look at this with clear eyes to see what went wrong. Um, so that we don't find ourselves in this situation again. This is an American issue, um, and we need to make sure that our people are getting home. And whether it's the Afghan military or anybody else, when you sit at the Resolute desk, you're the commander-in-chief, and you're the one that's supposed to make sure that American lives are protected over there. Uh, I'm glad that they're plussing up the the military deployment to secure the airport, uh, but I suspect that there's going to be quite a few American personnel and others 
um, who we're going to need to make sure that we can secure and get out of that country pretty quickly. Kevin Walling, we have long referred to Afghanistan as America's longest war. Will we look back in a couple of years and suggest that it was our last war? Are we technically not at war right now? And, and how will this impact future decisions to go into foreign countries militarily? I think it will certainly have an impact. You know, we were on the ground for over 7,000 days uh, in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so certainly, you know, you have the domestic considerations as well and uh, the fortitude of the American people to engage uh, in this kind of uh, nation building. Now, the president spoke of this uh, in his remarks in terms of the original mission of Operation Enduring Freedom that got off path in terms of wanting to rebuild the Afghan economy, stand up a government, and things like that. Now, the appetite going forward for the American people, I think, will certainly be hurt with our experiences, specifically in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, going forward. And certainly, you saw you know, the encouragement from our adversaries like Russia, China. They want us in these type of entanglements for very much longer. Uh, so he spoke specifically of that to, to uh, Bill's point in, ter- in terms of not really speaking to the specifics on the ground with his evacuation, but more the kind of the grandiose focus of this overall engagement as a way to potentially deflect from what we're seeing on the, on the ground. Bill, I've asked a lot of people about the comparisons to Vietnam, to the evacuation of Saigon, the helicopter hanging over the rooftop. Are they fair in this case? I think they are fair, but I think more importantly for this generation, and for the men and women who served bravely uh, in Afghanistan, I think Kabul is going to become its own reference point going forward uh, for these types of situations, just because of the scenes we're seeing uh, coming out of the airport. Um, and I suspect some of the reports that we're going to get. I mean, one point that, uh, you know, you talked about the comms issue earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to remember that every major news organization has had reporters and crews on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, covering American and other operations there. Um, they know the people who are there and who need to get out. And I think it's important for a comm shop like the one in the current White House to remember um, these reporters have very personal experiences and relationships uh, with individuals on the ground in Afghanistan who are now in harm's way um, and do not have a bright future if they're not able to get out of this country. I only have 30 seconds, Kevin. What happens if we don't get them out? then this continues to be a more than a daily and weekly story and will hamper, I think, the president's ability to deliver on issues domestically. He's got a jam-packed rest of August and September, and that will certainly be a handicap going forward with issues within our own country. Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist, HG Creative Media, Bill McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group, adding a smart take to end the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.